0: I'm John Moe, and this is one of our first episodes of Home Dunk. We hope you like it. Please be sure to share your thoughts online at infiniteguest.org. Your thoughts about the show, I mean, and my show and some other shows. Don't just share your thoughts about anything, because we don't want an internet like that.
1: I hit a home dunk. I wish that you would shown up. I played a I jumped out the gymnasium and knocked it out the park I hit did a home handstand, day. I hit a grand slam It was a great day for the fans, man I got three sacks and broke three bats I gave the crowd money plus free snacks I did a hat trick and a backflip It's on ESPN Classic and you weren't there and it hurt me to watch them retire my jersey I hit a home dunk
0: is Home Dunk. I'm John Moe, coming to you from the Twin Cities, Minnesota, where all the teams here just say Minnesota instead of a particular city. Have you noticed that about around here? It's the Minnesota Twins, the Minnesota Timberwolves, Minnesota Vikings, even though they're all in Minneapolis, mind you. The Wild are here in St. Paul, where I am, but all the teams are just called Minnesota. And with that name, I suppose they could be in Duluth or Brainerd or Thief River Falls, and it would be okay. But no, they're mostly here in the Twin Cities in Minnesota. And here in Minnesota, we are waiting, waiting patiently until the love is gone. Kevin Love, power forward, Minnesota Timberwolves. He wants to leave Minnesota because the wolves... They just lose a lot of games. They just lose a lot, and he's 25, and he's from Portland, and he went to college in L.A., and so he's spending all these winters where it's minus a billion and there are Yeti in the streets and he's losing games and he's thinking, what is the point of any of this? And God is trying to ice murder me and I want to get out of here. And, you know, I I love Minnesota. I'm a transplant here. Uh, I want to be here forever. I think it's fantastic. But I would never, ever try to talk anyone into moving here because it's uh, it can be difficult. And for Kevin Love, it's it's proven to be... <laughs> too difficult. He wants out. Um, And the thing is, all those losses, though, he was on a lot of those teams. The team has lost a lot of games with him. And so it turns out that uh, love isn't all you need. All you need is more than just love. Love won't keep them together. Love has been in the air, the skyways that traverse Minneapolis. But Our love won't pay our bills. Love is a many-splendored thing, but of course he can't create his own shot. Now, I'm not saying love stinks, no, no, but sometimes love don't feel like it should. Anyway, so he wants to leave, and the Wolves are trying to make that happen, and I think I'm waiting for the team to do something really stupid. Uh, which would be to trade him to either Golden State or Chicago. And the reason that would be stupid, I'm sure there are statistical reasons why basketballically it would be a really great move. And, uh, you know, they would have the different point differential that would balance out if they were picking up Clay Thompson or David Lee or uh, some of these other people from the Bulls. There's a a guy from, uh, from Eastern Europe who they're thinking of sending over. Um, But, I think that would be a phenomenally big mistake. Instead, here's what they should do. They should take the trade that the Cleveland Cavaliers are offering. The Cleveland Cavaliers, once again the home of LeBron James, are offering up the number one pick in the most recent draft, Andrew Wiggins. They're also offering up along with Wiggins, the number one pick in the last draft. Anthony Bennett, who's a fat guy from Las Vegas who isn't very good at basketball, but still was the number one pick in the draft. Then they might throw in some draft picks, and the, the, the Timberwolves absolutely need to do this. And I'll tell you why. Because every sports team needs a star player. And the reason for that is that every story needs a protagonist you got to have a protagonist. And Clay Thompson or uh, David Lee or the Eastern European guy from Chicago, they are all supporting players. They are supporting characters. They're character actors. They are not leading men. Kevin Love has been a leading man. He'll be a supporting character to LeBron James in Cleveland. But you need a central figure to follow. You need a face of the franchise. You need somebody to get excited about I'm as I've said as I as I say to a lot of people I'm from Seattle I've been a lifelong Seattle Mariners fan but for a lot of those years I was a casual Mariners fan I followed them because you know they were the team in town I didn't really get excited about them until they drafted a guy named Ken Griffey Jr and once Ken Griffey Jr got to the major leagues that was the player You know, I I could zone out the rest of the game. I could not really pay all that much attention. But when Junior was up to bat, I paid attention. I zeroed in on that. As he declined, we had a bit of a rise of Alex Rodriguez back when he was a nice guy. And so you followed him. As he left town, Ichiro Suzuki came to town. And so you always had that one central player that you could get excited about. And I think that helps the narrative of sports. That helps the narrative of the team you're following. It gives you a protagonist. It gives you an Odysseus in the, the long journey that is a sports season. And it gives you somebody to really pay attention to. I think the team needs that. I think Andrew Wiggins might be that player. Not so much Ben and not so much the fat guy from Las Vegas, but, but Wiggins. And, uh, part of that is that he's nicknamed uncle Wiggly. I saw that once I saw that nickname, once I saw the Uncle Wiggly nickname, once I knew wiggling might be part of the the nomenclature, then I was sold because then we had our protagonist. Um, love has been that there's been a big history of important guys named Kevin on this team, but it's okay. We can shift to Andrew on the Timberwolves and and follow that and have our lead guy. It turns out we didn't have an endless love, but we can bring on the Wiggles. We've got a fun show for you today. We're going to be talking with Jonah Carey from Grantland about baseball as the baseball season starts to head towards the finish line. Just a couple months to go here, find out some storylines we should be following. We're going to talk to Rhett Miller of the Old 97s about football. Football training camps are getting ready to start. Rhett is a lifelong Dallas Cowboys fan, and he tells us how he uh, copes with the the handful of joys and big vault full of disappointments that cowboy fandom has to offer we're also going to talk to dana burgess he's a professor of classics at whitman college in walla walla washington we're going to compare the odyssey of lebron james to the odyssey of odysseus the odyssey you know that odyssey stay with us Jonah Carey is a staff writer and a podcast host for Grantland. He's the author of The Extra 2%, How Wall Street Strategies Took a Major League Baseball Team from Worst to First. He has a new book out now called Up, Up, and Away on the History of the Montreal Expos. Hello, Jonah. How's it going, Jonah? It's going okay. Uh, it's, you know, we're a ways through the baseball season. We're out of the All-Star break. Traffic for the All-Star game has cleared up finally here in the Twin Cities. And uh, we're looking at the the stretch run. So if I am a person who's not, like, devouring statistics and closely following one team and living or dying by their win-loss record, if I'm just a general baseball fan, what should I be paying attention to?
2: Well, we're recording this, but I'm sitting here watching in real time as Bartolo Colon has just gone through six perfect innings. Bartolo Colon is 41 years old and raised, weighs 41,000 pounds. Uh, <laughs> And so this is pretty impressive.
0: He but, has his uh, own gravitational field.
2: I, I feel like that's the case. You know, you combine that with the Pacific Northwest, and you get all kinds of weather vortexes going on. Yeah, all that that's where he's play. pitching. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, yeah, lots of storylines. I mean, you know, since you guys are in the Midwest, I mean, I would just point to the, uh, great, it's the NL Central, not the AL Central, because it's Twins to sink again this year. Mm. But the NL Central is pretty compelling. That might be the best race in all baseball, actually. I just wrote about it at grantland.com uh, today. Uh, today is not the day that this is coming out, but that's all right. Uh, Milwaukee Brewers <laughs> are sitting in first place, uh, which is pretty interesting. They came into this year with pretty low expectations, got off a huge start, slumped, and now they've kind of come back and won the last couple and are looking pretty good. Cardinals are on their tail. Reds are on their tail. Pirates are on their tail. And I feel like in this baseball world where we always talk about the Yankees and the Red Sox, yeah, uh, or at least it seems that way, they're not the teams to talk about this year. Neither of them are particularly good, and we've got kind of these smaller market uh more uh you know heartlands teams that are really making a run out of this
0: season yeah i noticed that i looked at the standings and it was like a set of standings that you might see in the first week of the season like baltimore orioles are on top of their division milwaukee brewers like everything's everything i thought i knew about the world has been flipped around
2: yeah i mean it's and it's cool to see that i mean baseball uh has parity. I mean, if you look at the World Series winners, it tends to change just about every year. And uh, I know the baseball gets a bad rap for it. There's no salary cap in baseball, so yeah. yes, the Yankees and the Dodgers do have payrolls over 200 million dollars. But I mean, you mentioned those teams. Heck, Oakland. I mean, Oakland has not spent money ever, and they have the best record in all of baseball. They're a phenomenal, dominant team without a particular superstar. Uh, you think about a team like Tampa Bay up until this year. Anyway, four to last six, they made the playoffs. Very, very small payroll. Teams like Cleveland are in the mix this year. I mean, uh, Pittsburgh is in the mix. It's good to see this. It's good to see that kind of healthy balance. And, uh, you know, it's wide open this year. I could not tell you who's going to win the World Series. It's pretty much anybody's guess at this point.
0: Let's let's talk about players here a little bit. You mentioned Bartolo Colon, and that's a name that I'm surprised to still be saying in 2014 <laughs> in a context other than Bartolo Colon was... Uh, you know, uh, ate a lot of hot dogs or something. Uh, has he dialed into something special? Because he's like a sought-after uh, trade object in in the upcoming trading season.
2: Well, and he's going up against a pretty darn good team, a team that would be in the playoffs if the season started, if the playoffs started tomorrow and throwing a perfect game through 6 innings. So, yes, he's only enhancing his trade value. And uh, he, he really has. Well, I mean, let's. we're going to get the skeptical, the, the cynical stuff out of the way first. Okay. He was busted for PED use. Now, PED use, I think we traditionally associate with a guy like Barry Bonds, who was a great athlete and a terrific player and, you know, gained a lot of mass and hit even more home runs than he had before. Right. Bartolo Cologne is not what you would call a physical specimen by any means, <laughs> unless you're talking about a laboratory specimen. Right. So, at that point, you have to ask, well, what's going on? Well, there are all kinds of reasons that you would take, whatever, and there are kinds of different PEDs. So... We put that aside. Having said that, what strikes me about Cologne is no two pitches are the same. So he's throwing about 91, which is not particularly fast in today's baseball. People are routinely in the mid-90s, sometimes high 90s or even 100. But that 91-mile-an-hour fastball, which is, by the way, just about the only pitch that he throws in terms of pitch classification. In other words, he doesn't throw a lot of sliders or curveballs or, or knuckleballs or anything. He's a fastball it's guy. Yeah. But it's a fastball that moves this way, and it darts that way, and it goes up and down. And it just has all this incredible movement such that he's not a big strikeout guy, but people hit it, and it's a grounder to second. And it's a pop out the third, and it's a routine fly out the center over and over. So there's simplicity in his game, but sometimes simplicity works really well.
0: And in terms of the PEDs for for pitchers, as I understand it, I mean, I'm, I'm a Mariners fan from way back. I remember yep. Ryan Franklin being busted for PEDs, Mariner pitcher, and it wasn't, he wasn't throwing – overwhelmingly fast, but it just let him recover faster and let him stay in the game, you know, and recover from all the torque that he was putting on his body.
2: Well and I think we just have a tendency that's right, by the way. And I think we have a tendency to get caught up in the sort of cartoonish stereotype of what PEGs are. Amphetamines are a performance enhancing drug. There's an outfielder named Cameron Mabin of the San Diego Padres just got suspended today for amphetamine use. Amphetamine is classified as a performance enhancer and rightfully so by the way. And it's striking to me I I will say right off that I am somebody who tends to fall on the side of not too concerned about this stuff. And quite frankly, if there was a pill that could make me a better writer and would allow my kids (laughs) to go to a better college and I could actually afford to pay my mortgage or whatever, I would be tempted to take it. I'm not going to lie. There's no question about it. And in the case of amphetamines, what happens is guys in the 60s and 70s in particular, that stuff was just everywhere. There would be bowls on the clubhouse table next to the sandwiches of these green pills, which people called greenies, euphemistically. And they would just pop them as if they were M&Ms, and this was not a problem. Everybody did it. Hank Aaron did it. Willie Mays did it. Pete Rose did it. This is known that they did it. It's not like it's a secret, and nobody for a second—Pete Rose is a little different—but nobody for a second would begrudge Hank Aaron or Willie Mays from going into the Hall of Fame. And yet, we are completely up in arms about Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens and so forth, because we see— physical changes, and we see the cartoonish element of it, and we say, well, those guys enhanced, and the other guys didn't. Let me tell you something. You play the second game of a doubleheader in St. Louis when it's 97 degrees in August, and you don't have a little pick-me-up? You really could use one. It would help you a lot. And these guys knew it, and they did it, and it helped their game. And yet, for some reason, we try to parse. We try to say, well, this is bad, and this is not bad.
0: We've talked about some teams that are are really putting it together, like Milwaukee, like Pittsburgh. Who are some players that right now are playing way over their heads, way better than they have any right to be playing, that the casual fan might want to take another look at?
2: That's interesting. Uh, I mean, I can certainly name the players that are playing best, but a lot of the guys with the best numbers and and the best MVP cases are, are known to be great players. Mike Trout is probably having the best year in the American League. Well, Mike Trout is the best player in baseball since the start of the 2012 season, pretty much. Uh, he just hasn't won the MVP award because he didn't have triple crown stats, which is a whole other discussion about advanced statistics, but he's a phenomenal player. And Andrew McCutcheon in the National League, arguably the best player in that league this year, and he won the MVP last season. For out-of-nowhere guys a lot of it tends to come from what you would call breakouts, basically. Guys that are you know young and, and we don't really know what's going to happen and they take a step forward. So uh, you know Billy Hamilton is one, a very fast player for Cincinnati. Very fast, like historically fast. And he's really emerged as not only a big full and base guy, but pretty good all-around player, good center fielder. He's been a big part of their success. Uh, and then sometimes you'll have a case where it could be a guy who has fallen on hard times and, and, and whatever just bounced back. And the guy that comes to mind for me is Scott Casimir. Scott Casimir was an exceptionally good pitcher with Tampa Bay when Tampa Bay was terrible back in 2007. And then he starts to fade a little bit. He gets traded to the Angels. And eventually he's out of baseball. Gets hurt. He's playing in the independent league. I mean, he's not in the majors. You don't see him at all. Signs a minor league deal with Cleveland, you know, just that they take a flyer on him and he pitches pretty well. Oakland gives him a two-year deal, and he's been exceptional. He's been one of the 10 best pitchers in the league this year. So it's a pretty amazing story of a guy who was just supremely talented, flamed out in his 20s, and comes back and has been really, really good. That's Oakland again. Recognizing talent and not necessarily worrying too much about the backstory.
0: Is that a matter of Casimir becoming healthy again, or is he? Did he get the right coaching? Did he get the right uh, nourishment in his body to to put it all together again?
2: I think it's a little bit of both. Back in the day, he used to throw ninety seven, ninety eight. He doesn't throw that hard anymore, but he still has a pretty good fastball, and it's better than it was uh, when he was on the decline. So I think that point is taken that he's gotten some health and, and some ability to throw like he used to. But it also is really coaching. I mean, they have a really good pitching coach named Kurt Young, who does a very good job of instruction. And Casmir is a guy who's known to take instruction very well. He did in Tampa Bay. They had an excellent uh, uh, pitching coach over there named Jim Hickey. And so, yeah, I think he just needed the right fit. And, uh, and you had to luck, too. I mean, you look at some of the guys, the best pitchers in all baseball this year, and so many guys have had what's called Tommy John surgery, where they, their ligament in their elbow snaps and they're gone. For a year, a year and a half, and this has happened to countless pitchers, including a guy named Jose Fernandez, who went healthy. He's 21, 22 years old. He's probably one of the five best pitchers that, that exist on Earth. And uh, a month into the season, pitching out of his mind, and he, you know, his elbow snaps, and that's the end of that. We'll see you next year. So there are on pace for a record number of Tommy John surgeries, and I would submit to you that whether it's a Casimir or a Clayton Kershaw or anybody who's doing really well this year, some of it just comes down to just you know. Their number hasn't come up, come up yet. For whatever reason, they've been able to avoid the injury bug, uh, but tomorrow could bring it. If so you just cross your fingers, you root for these guys, and you hope that they don't get hurt because it seems like it's inevitable that it's going to happen.
0: Well, that's another – the Tommy John surgery is another thing that is, can put fans on edge. Like you can follow your team, and maybe your star pitcher will cough up a bunch of runs, and that will disappoint you. But then there's also the added danger that his arm is just going to completely fall apart.
2: Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I mean, you look at uh, the base rate is just really high, and I wrote a whole piece about that at Grandland. And there's a bunch of theories as to why it might be. Uh, there's an argument that guys are throwing harder than ever before, and the arms just can't take that much torque, so we have more guys throwing 97, 98, 99. Some people argue that it starts young—that you're in high school and you go to a showcase tournament. And there's scouts there, and you've got two innings to impress, so you just air out your arm and. You damage it then such that even if you don't have Tommy John surgery the next day, you know it's going to come back to haunt you that you know, that presumably that kind of uh, approach will hurt you. There are all kinds of things like that. My theory is that it's medical imaging, that because we have better medical technology than ever before, you can see little lesions or little whatever it is in the arm better than ever before. And so immediately you can say, all right, there's a tear there. You know, where maybe five, uh, 20, 10, or even five years ago you couldn't. And so now the pitcher, along with the medical professionals, can make an informed opinion and say, we know this guy's got a tear. He can pitch with this thing for two months or three months or six months, but he's going to need that surgery eventually. So the guy says, you know what, it's March. The season hasn't started yet. Why don't we just shut this thing down now, and then hopefully by next year on opening day I'll be back in the lineup. And that's what keeps happening. And we saw an inordinate number of injuries and, and Tommy John surgeries and shutdowns happened in March, perhaps as a result of that, The those guys went in for medical testing, uh, you know, in their facilities, and it was found that they had something wrong with them, maybe not necessarily the worst hair of all time, but they said, I'm going to have to have the surgery eventually, let's just do it now.
0: Yeah, protect the investment, I suppose. Um, before I let you go here, Jonah, let me ask you this, as the, as the pennant race continues, as everybody tries to capture a triangular flag known as the pennant, uh, what is a team or a player that for you as a baseball professional, if you see something going on with that team, you always pay attention? Like you, somebody watching at bat, a team that you always want to keep up on. Like who is the baseball writers, baseball team or player?
2: You know, I think it's more individuals. If you watch basketball, for instance, I'm a basketball and baseball kind of one and one A for me in terms of favorite sports. Uh-huh. I'm a big, big basketball fan. I feel like with basketball, it becomes more team-oriented. For instance, I watch San Antonio any day. They're just such a delight. You know, so much ball movement. They just do such a good job. They're, just, they're clinical. They'll just break you apart. It's just it's poetic to watch. In baseball, it is very much an individual sport, even though I feel like baseball players are not marketed as much. For instance, Mike Trout doesn't have an iota, even a percentage, a fraction of the same, that LeBron James has. Yes, but LeBron James, you know, plays on a team, and there are other th- other people will interact with LeBron James in a, may- in a way that makes him look better. He'll throw a great passes. He'll do something else that makes the teammates better. Baseball is a one-on-one relationship, so I will defer on your question and say that it's more players than teams for me. It's not that I have to watch Angels; it's that I have to watch Mike Trout. But I think the one guy, you know, if I have to pick anybody, it's probably Clayton Kershaw. He is just pitching in a way, you know, the comparison has been made in the past to Sandy Koufax because uh-huh. they're both left-handed pitchers who pitch for the Dodgers and they're putting up these huge, huge numbers. I think Clayton Kershaw, it's pretty safe to say, has either caught Sandy Koufax or is just about to. I mean, he really is that good. And I think especially if you compare to the environments where Koufax pitched in the 60s and the mounds were 50 feet high and you know <laughs> facing 140-pound middle infielders who can't hit the bottom of the infield. That's a whole different story than today, which granted offense is not as high as it was during the Barry Bonds era, but still much higher than it was in the 60s. And he's just carving through these lineups with precision, just killing everybody. He recently had a no-hitter where he struck out 15 guys in a no-hitter. Think about how many pitches that takes. But he made it work. He was efficient. He was phenomenal. He is a joy, a joy to watch. And even if you're not a Dodgers fan, if they're playing anybody, the worst, most boring team or the best team or whoever, I would definitely flip on Clayton Kershaw. I intend to do that for every one of his starts from here to the end of the season, despite the fact that for my job, I have to cover all 30 teams.
0: <laughs> is he, it, how is he doing it? Is he just painting the corners? Is he car- you mentioned carving people up. Sounds like precision pitching.
2: It's everything, man. I mean, he can throw 96, 97 by you, no problem. Uh, he's got multiple great pitches. I wrote, a, uh, please do check out Grantland, Jonah Carey, Clayton Kershaw. Did a couple pieces on him. One this year, and the one that I really liked was last year. And it really dissects everything that he does. And one of my, I've got two good stories for Clayton Kershaw, which I'll try to tell them really quickly. One is he's in the bullpen. This is earlier in his career. He's got a great fastball and a great curve. Those are kind of his two greatest pitches at that point. And what they want to work on is they want to have him throw a pitch that is halfway as fast, you know, in between the curve and the fastball. Curve's real slow, fastball's real fast. So they say, "Can you throw a slider?" He says, "I've never thrown a slider in my entire life. Not in little league, not in high school, not in the minors, not in the majors." They say, "All right, why don't we just mess around with it?" So, okay, you get the grip on the slider. He throws the pitch. Everybody stops what they're doing and they just look at each other in awe. And the, the pitching coach said. That is one of the best sliders I've ever seen in my entire life. This is the first time this guy has ever thrown this pitch in his existence on earth. And the pitching coach, a veteran of 30 years in the game, is completely blown away by this thing. So the guy has supernatural talent and commands so many pitches. The fastball, the curve, the slider is another one, throws a good changeup. That He can do it with finesse and he can do it with power, which the great ones can. That is Clemens, that is Roger Clemens or Walter Johnson or any of the greatest pitchers of all time. Uh, if you think about the other story for Clayton Kershaw, which is different, he's very focused. And I know that we have a tendency as sports writers to deify guys. You know, we look for these intangibles or whatever. And I'm, I'm more on the uh, prove-it-to-me side. I'm more on the analytical side. So I don't get too caught up in Jeter being intense or this guy doing this or whatever. But I tell this story because it's very funny. So Kershaw is known to be a very amiable guy. I know him a little bit. I've talked to him before. And he's very, you know, it's fine four days out of five. The day that he pitches he is a maniac, and I will explain how and why. The Dodgers used to have this game where they would say, all right, we're going to put a pool of money together. And whoever can say the most outrageous thing to Kershaw between innings, during his start, will get the pot. It would be $500, $1,000, whatever. And so they're all talking whatever. And nobody had the courage to do it. And finally, one of the guys from the bullpen, he says, all right, I'm going to do it. And he comes up to him and he's about to do it. And Kershaw absolutely stares daggers at the guy, and he runs away scurrying or whatever. So I found out this story from the catcher of the Dodgers, AJL is a good friend of Kershaw. I said, Well what was the test? What was he supposed to say to Kershaw to get him off his game? He said, oh. He was gonna ask Kershaw if Kershaw thought that the ending to Inception was real. <laughs> that's what it was going to be. And it's just like that's the kind of, you know, goofy, totally baseball story that even though I'm a big stat head, I love that stuff. And uh, it goes to this guy's personality that he's a sweetheart. He builds builds orphanages in Africa, for goodness sake, with his wife. That's what he does with his free time. But he's also this guy who will bite your head off if you talk to him during your time.
0: Well, uh, Jonah Carey, sounds like we should just look at Los Angeles from here on out and look for Mike Trout and look for Clayton Kershaw. We can enjoy the rest of the baseball season.
2: I love it. I think that's a good strategy.
0: All right. Jonah Carey from Grantland, thanks so much. Thank you, John. Miller is with us, lead singer of the old 97s, currently on tour. We're talking to him in Richmond, Virginia. Hello, Rhett.
1: Hi, John. How are you?
0: I'm well. Welcome to Defend Your Fandom, and you are a fan of the Dallas Cowboys.
1: I'm a huge Dallas Cowboys fan and have been since as long as I can remember.
0: How long can you remember? Do you go back to Roger Staubach, Danny White? Dude, (laughs) I...
1: Um, I go back before Roger Staubach a little bit, but my my real memory started with Staubach and that that '70s team when I was a little kid. But um, it was so much fun to be a fan back then, and I remember listening on the radio a lot. We would um, we'd park the car when we'd get to where we were going, like dinner with the family. We'd have to listen to the end of the quarter the end of the game, and back, would invariably pull us back to some great victory, and the radio announcers would be going crazy, and it was, it was a fun time to be a fan.
0: It was a magic time, I'm sure, and, and then you had the Troy Aikman years and all the championships that went with that, but, but how about today, Rhett? How can you be a fan of the Dallas Cowboys today when they're, if I may cross-examine you, mired in mediocrity? Can we
1: just talk about the '70s? <laughs> uh, no, it's it's uh, it's a little tough. You know, you have to you have to find ways to supplement your fandom. Like, um, you know, I do fantasy football as so many people do, and I create my own little fantasy world in which I can actually go to the playoffs. Um, it's tough. I mean, you know, as you know, the Cowboys haven't been to the playoffs in like 300 years. Yeah, yeah. and and um, Jerry Jones is hell-bent on making all of us go insane. And Jerry Jones Jones change is, until yeah. he dies, which I don't think he's going to do because I think he's got enough money where he might never die.
0: Yeah, no, he'll, he'll be preserved in some sort of waxy robotic state, I think, uh, forever. Um, talk about Jerry Jones. He's the owner of the team. He, he tries to run everything. He has a, a huge say in all the decisions of the team. Does that make it harder if you presumably dislike Jerry Jones but love the team?
1: Well, he's the general manager of the team, and he doesn't have any real football experience other than being a rich guy who bought a football team. Uh-huh. It's uh, it's really hard to to root for him because just, I mean, I, he's probably a nice enough guy, I guess, but you know all you ever hear is his insane grammar, and, and then you see the Botox face with the crazy scrub peeled. I mean, he just looks like <laughs> he's being artificially preserved, and... It's just, it's, it's a tough thing. And, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I, there's a – all my friends in Dallas like to say, when is Jerry Jones, the owner, going to fire Jerry Jones, the general manager? Uh, and the answer is never.
0: Never. So. That guy's got a job for life thanks to that same guy. <laughs> uh how and how do you feel about uh, how do you feel about this upcoming season? I saw on ESPN that there was they ranked the Cowboys somewhere in the middle, not terrible, but but far from the top. How what, what's your optimism level right now?
1: Well, it's funny. My drummer Philip and I were just last night discussing this phenomenon where, when the season the previous season in, ended, we uh, sat there and thought, "I never again." I'm never gonna buy into it again. <laughs> I'm never gonna think that, that there's any chance again because they just keep breaking my heart. But then now, training camp is about to start up in Oxnard, California, and we got these new draft picks, and and the back surgery is you know four months removed for our aging awesome quarterback, and you know so hope has sprung eternal once again. And Philip and I at least have bought in, and we think that. We're taking the division and going all
0: the way. Oh, right.
1: (laughs) We're turning it around.
0: You're learning to love again, aren't you? You, You've mended your broken heart. This is all, I'm realizing now, the connection between your Dallas Cowboys fandom and the inherent sadness and heartbreak of old 97 songs.
1: It's true, I get asked a lot in interviews like well, if you you seem like a pretty happy guy, where do you come up with this incredible reserve of sadness? I and think we found I it. don't want to dork out and tell him that it's the Dallas Cowboys, but <laughs> it just might be John
0: it's, you know, so all these things when you're talking and singing about a a girl breaking your heart it's It's secretly Tony Romo
1: <laughs> I love him i can't quit I can't quit Tony Romo.
0: <laughs> what is it about Tony Romo?
1: Um, it's, I don't know, that rakish grin that, you know, Wisconsin charm, Uh the fact, the fact that he quit golf this season so that his back wouldn't get yanked.
0: (laughs) Yeah. There's something to love there.
1: Well, I did get to meet him once. I was at the um, correspondence dinner a few years ago, and I got introduced to him and his cute uh, at the time girlfriend and now wife. And and you know what? He was so sweet and charming and normal and and um, you know I just he's a sweet guy. And I I've always been a believer. And this many years in, it's really hard to keep this fixed smile fixed. But I really would love for him to have the kind of season where his stats equal some sort of success on the field and in the playoffs. And people can finally say, oh, okay, he is a good quarterback. He's not just cursed.
0: You, you're so optimistic, and I love well, that about you.
1: What else is there? What else no, is there finally? I don't, I don't think you know this. Or I don't think you knew this when you asked me to be on your show, but my grandfather actually owned the very first professional football franchise in Dallas. What?
0: Was that the Dallas grandfather-
1: Texans? But yes, the first Dallas Texans, there were two. Giles Miller, in 1954, bought the New Whoa. York Yankees, brought them to Dallas. They played in the Cotton Bowl. They lasted less than one season. They won one game. <laughs> they were a terrific disaster that cost not only Dallas fans football for a few years um, because because they were so bad they had to go to Baltimore, um, but they it also cost my family the entire fortune that had been amassed over generations, oh, leading no. up to my grandfather squandering it on this stupid venture trying to bring football to
0: dallas (laughs) your grandfather couldn't make football work in the state of texas
1: well hey you're awfully harshing on my (laughs) grandfather
0: (laughs) oh rhett miller rhett miller's heart has been broken by dallas football and so he is now qualified to tour the country playing his music breaking the hearts of others rhett miller thanks for being with us (laughs) Thanks, John Mo
1: Thanks for doing God's work there on public radio. I love <laughs> you, man. People are laughing. we are having such fun. I wish that was happening to me. But this is the
0: moment. When LeBron James decided to go back to Cleveland, one of the first thoughts I had was, it's just like Odysseus. He's been away, and now he's coming back, and it's uh, maybe there are suitors, and maybe there's a Penelope. I'm not sure, but it felt uh, Odyssean. It felt Homeric to me. But what do I know? I read the Odyssey in 10th grade, really (laughs) haven't read it all the way through since. But one guy I know knows a lot about this kind of stuff. He taught it to me when I was in college quite a while ago. He reads this stuff in the original text. He is Dana Burgess, a professor of classics at Whitman College in Walla Walla, Washington. Hello, Dana. Hi, John. How you doing? I'm well. Uh, so tell me, am I on base or off base in comparing LeBron's Odyssey to Odysseus's Odyssey?
3: I think it's a reasonable comparison because Odysseus had a lot of trouble coming home, and it didn't look like a slam dunk, to use an appropriate metaphor. Um, <laughs> coming home for Odysseus was a problem. The house was infested with suitors. He had created some ill will uh, because of his departure, like LeBron, mm-hmm. uh, and so he had to deal with that upon his return.
0: What was Odysseus's ill will that he left behind?
3: Well, uh, the the gap that he left uh, meant that uh, other people tried to fill it. So his wife was pursued by suitors, and his son lacked uh, guidance. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that, the problems that arose, um, are con- connected with Odysseus's ego.
0: Ah, now and, we're onto and something. And
3: LeBron's departure from Cleveland also included a bit of egotism which offended the uh, uh citizens of Cleveland and other Americans, just <laughs> like uh, Odysseus's uh outsized ego created some problems
0: for him right and this is uh this is hubris then isn't it? Okay. So LeBron leaves, and I, I think I remember when he when he made that announcement. It was very tacky, of course, the way he did the announcement. But even no decision. yeah, the decision, even the substance of it was, I now care about myself. This is about me. Right. He had grown up in Akron. He then he lived in Cleveland. He went to the NBA straight from high school. But uh, so instead of carrying the community. Uh, on his back, on his young shoulders, he said, "I'm going to go to South Beach. I'm going to go to Miami. I'm going to have a good time. This is finally about me." And now it's almost like a, a complete reversal. And now he needs to become—he needs to become the king again.
3: Uh huh. And and to a certain extent, the story you just told is one of growing up. Yeah. And and in a way, Odysseus, even though he leaves. Uh, Ithaca, as an adult, does do a lot of growing up while he's away, and when he returns, he kind of recognizes his more adult responsibilities to establish himself back in Ithaca and, and make things right.
0: This, uh, this story of LeBron, LeBron is huge in people's imagination right now. People talk about him constantly in the sports media. If you're a sports fan, you have an opinion on him, and... I wonder how much of that is wed to the familiar archetype of uh, the returning king or the, you know, the prodigal son returning home. Like how much of what we respond to in popular culture do you think is wedded in these baked in stories and myths?
3: Yeah, that makes sense. You know, it's interesting that you raise the prodigal son because the prodigal son in the Bible comes home and they kill the fatted calf and have a big barbecue for him. Uh-huh. But Odysseus comes home and he has to be disguised as a beggar to sneak into town. They throw a sausage at him. They throw footstools at him. He has to really prove himself with the test of the bow. He has to demonstrate that he can string this big bow before they he can be accepted back into his community. So. Those are very different experiences, but what you're asking really is, do the mythic archetypes of these stories resonate with us? Do we, do we try to fit the LeBron story into pre-existing stories that we know? Either well, from the Bible I know or I do. Homer? And I, I couldn't agree more. We yeah. do, because we think in those story patterns, we've been trained to think about people coming home and that being either a problem or an opportunity.
0: So which came first, though? I mean, is it that way because the the story uh, laid down by Homer, but existing as an epic poem, as I understand, beyond merely Homer, uh, is it that that story was so compelling that it informed the way we hear stories? Or does that stick around because that's the type of story we in our brain psychologically want to hear?
3: That's a huge question in in mythology, but uh, personally, I think the stories that um, resonate broadly – do so because they speak to something in common experience. They tell us something about ourselves. So the reason that the story of Odysseus's return becomes so important is because it does speak to something. People go away. They change and experience different things. And coming home is fraught with uh, challenges and it. I think, I think that that's why those stories have a kind of uh, enduring quality is because they do speak to things we want to understand.
0: Are there other mythic parallels that fit LeBron better than Odysseus?
3: Hmm. Um, well, I just tossed out Achilles for yucks. And <laughs> Achilles doesn't have a story of returning home because he dies at Troy. Yeah. So he doesn't have a homecoming. But as a heel injury, story as is one of a man who pouts and withdraws from supporting his uh, fellow Greeks. And that resonates with the LeBron story. Oh. So Achilles in the Iliad is the great, greatest warrior among the Greeks. And he says, I'm not going to fight for you anymore. I'm just going to pout in my tent. And, uh, and some citizens of Cleveland might see the parallel to be closer to Achilles. Right. And Achilles does that, you know, maliciously.
0: So if LeBron had suffered a career-ending heel injury while in Miami.
3: (laughs) Then he would parallel the Achilles story pretty well.
0: All right. We're going to keep an eye on the mythology of LeBron and of the NBA and of sports in general uh, because we have Dana Burgess on our side. Dana Burgess at Whitman College, thanks so much. Thank you. finally, just a quick update from Blackpool, where the 2014 Bet Victor World Match Play Tournament is underway. I'm sorry, I'm talking about darts. Maybe I should explain. I assume you knew I was talking about darts. Anyway, Phil Taylor, what can I tell you? He's still the man to beat, and it hasn't happened yet. Taylor cruised to victory over Michael Smith. I guess that's why they call Taylor the power. Smith, the former junior champion, had beaten Taylor in their last meeting, but... Taylor's got the power. Still trying to fight the power. Michael Van Gerwen and Adrian Lewis both looked strong in early matches as well. All these guys are really good at throwing darts at dartboards. James Wade, Dave Chisnall, and Simon Whitlock all advance as well. Still anyone's tournament in Blackpool where men throw darts at a dartboard. That's it for Home Dunk. Engineering help from Michael Osborne and Corey Schreppel. Production help from Steve Nelson and Peter Clowney. The Home Dunk theme is by Open Mike Eagle, host of the Secret Skin podcast, also heard here on the Infinite Guest Podcasting Network. I'm John Moe. Bye now. I hit a home
1: dunk. I wish that you would show now. I played over my head. Everything was off the charts. I jumped out the it's a young man
0: Home Dunk is part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. You should check out some of the other shows on this uh, on this network, like A Tiny Sense of Accomplishment with Sherman Alexie and Jess Walter, or Big Appetites with Patty Hinnich and Sally Swift. A lot of good stuff going on. Search for Infinite Guest on the Google machine or go to infiniteguest.org. For information about other things, go to other places on the Internet.